0: Thank you very much, Prabhat. Uh, It's a great pleasure to be with all of you and particularly to be contacted by Prabhat Mitro. After so many years, uh, we spent an enjoyable few years in RK Hall in IIT Kharagpur. Uh, And so it's it's lovely to meet him again and uh, follow his invitation to be with you all. When Prabhat asked me to talk about this subject, uh, which I I, I actually gave him the topic of the history of Indian wisdom traditions, uh, and later the daunting scope of what uh, I have accepted dawned on me. Um, It's as they say, biting off more than you can chew, uh, particularly given the small scope of time to cover so many thousand years. Um, so please bear with me because our time is short. Uh, I'll have to um, cover this area in an in a outline form, <clears throat> but I hope you bear with me. Uh, to answer the question, why did I choose this very large uh, sweep? when I could have selected something small to be more conducive to this short period of time that we are spending together. Um, The answer I'd say is that over the last 500 years through the period of what we call modernity up until the 20th century, we have expanded an age of specialization. We've developed many kinds of specializations uh, and proliferated our understanding without knowing what other specializations were really all about. Um, But entering the 21st century, we are called upon to a new task. It's the age of integration we are suddenly faced with a global situation and a situation in which holistic knowledge, global knowledge has to arise in a way in which we can make sense of our past and move ahead with informed choices. So this is partly why I chose to talk about the history of Indian Western traditions, which as I said, is a very wide scope and extremely daunting. Um, So I will start with a, as I said, it's going to be an illustrated talk. So I will uh, share a PowerPoint and uh, walk you through uh, that PowerPoint uh, as we proceed. So this is what it is, Indian wisdom traditions, a historical perspective. And we will go back in time to 2500 BCE, which is uh, the Indus Valley period. I'm going to, I'm trying to, okay, just something for me, okay. And uh, Prabhat spoke about the wisdom texts. It's not only wisdom texts, wisdom traditions uh, include visual material as well. Because when we go back to the Indus Valley, we're not looking at texts. There is writing in this period, but we have not deciphered the texts of this period. So it's visual material we are looking at. Also, I'd like to say that what I'm talking about is not necessarily shared by everybody. Uh, History is always speculative. There's always many different ways in which we can understand history. And so, making the use of the evidence of the past, I'm presenting you with my understanding of the history of Indian wisdom traditions. You may disagree, and if you do, I don't object to that. I believe there are plural histories and we may discuss that later when we get a chance. Uh, So going back to the Indus Valley and looking for signs of spiritual traditions, wisdom traditions at that time, uh, some of the most common artifacts that we find archeologically in this uh, era and in this, uh, uh, you know, uh, region, this is the region we are talking about. Actually, this map gives you a good idea of the trade routes of the time. You can see how this region, which actually this is, this is the, uh, the port of Lothal in Gujarat, and you can actually trace this entire region going up um, to almost the Gangetic, uh, valley, uh, places like Rakhigari, Banawali, Kalibangan, to the Indus Valley, uh, Harappa, which is the earliest site that was excavated. That's why many people call it the Harappan civilization, after that place. And then Mohenjo-Daro, which is the other very major site that was excavated. Uh, so this entire, all these Rahman Deri, etc., going all the way here is the wide scope of what we call the Indus Valley Civilization. Now, this peaks around 2700 BCE in the sense of a civilization. But if we go back tracing the settlements that lead to this, we have settlements like Shanu-Daro and other settlements like this that actually go all the way back to the 8000 BC or so. So we're looking at 2700, but there's a gradual urbanization that has occurred. And this is what we call the Neolithic period or the new stone period. Some technologies arise at this time. And one of the technologies is ceramics. So firing clay is something that makes its appearance So some of the earliest artifacts going back to 8,000 BC, but continuing all the way into the Indus Valley and then onward, all the way almost past the Mauryan period into the Kushana period, are little figurines in terracotta. And some of the most common figurines are what have been called the mother goddess figurines. Now, most of these figures, particularly on the top, they come from a very early layer of this uh, civilization. Uh, so you can see how sophisticated these little, and how enigmatic they are. So why are we calling them mother goddess figures? Because there is a prevalence of this kind of figure all the way from Southern Euro- Europe, uh, through Eurasia up to India and even further. So we know from 40,000 BC, uh, they've been producing in stone or in various kinds of clay, uh, these figures that have some sacred significance. Now, in the case of Indus Valley, most of these figures are found in rubbish heaps. In other words, they have been discarded at some point. And the other thing is that some of them have got pinpricks to them. And so we today surmise that they were temporary objects of worship. And something that is not very uncommon to us even today, we can have two kinds of temporary objects of worship in India. One is seasonal worship. We are right uh, on the borders of the season of Devi worship in India. you know, Durga Puja, Kali Puja, Lakshmi Puja, etc. Uh, so these are seasonal goddesses that come to life for a little bit of time and then go back into nature. Uh, the other temporal way of worship is functional worship, where there is a certain specific function for which a goddess is invoked. And then after the function is over, she goes back into nature. So what we are looking at over here are forms of temporary worship, and we are not sure at this time what was the function, what was the season, or what was the nature of the worship. But let's take stock of this and move on. Here we find uh, some more, uh, you know, the the range of sophistication, you may say, of these objects. Um, Let's go on. Some of these terracotta forms show us what may be called yoga poses. Uh, People have surmised that these may be early poses of asana uh, in the Indus Valley. The other really frequently occurring uh, object are these seals. Uh, Seals are very enigmatic. They have the only instances of writing which is yet undeciphered and we still don't know exactly what they're about. Uh, They have bosses at the back, which means you can hang them from your neck. And we also know that they were used as a kind of trademarker because sacks and things like that have got stamps with these um, objects, um, or images marked on them. So what we find is that most of them have Animal images. So, some scholars have surmised that these were identity markers. In other words, society was divided into groups that gravitated around one of these animals and wore that particular kind of identity marker and stamped their goods with that particular marker. As you see, most of them are in our animals, a rhino, buffalo. Uh, There, there, there's an elephant, Uh, there are mythical animals like this one horned bovine unicorn, like a cow like unicorn, but you also find some the, the bull, but you also find some complex seals, like this one over here, with several figures in it, or this one over here, which shows a person sitting down in an interesting posture. And there are others. So when we can look at these, they are made of what is called steatite. Steatite is a kind of powdered stone that has been amalgamated into these seals. Some of these we find are about animal contests. You can see this person is trying to hold two tigers at an arm's length. These kind of animal contests were pervasive in the Eurasian region at this time. So we have images of this in Mesopotamia showing animal contests. You have certain animal contests in the Grecian regions in places like Crete, etc. Here you have somebody who's either s- sitting on a tree branch right above a tiger, seeming to invite the tiger, maybe about to leap onto the tiger's back. Um, These show us a figure with horns, and some of them show this figure is literally butting horns with a buffalo. Uh, These figures are sitting in that strange posture, which looks like they may be what in later imagery uh, seems to be a lotus posture, but it isn't a lotus posture. They're actually sitting on their toes. Uh, So we find a number of these figures, horned figures, wearing bangles, often sitting on their toes. This interesting figure shows us a connection between the two. Here is a horn figure sitting on the toes and perhaps the same figure in an animal contest with a buffalo. And it's very possible if you look at some of the early civilizations and even... uh, somewhat late civilizations that have followed animistic practices, um, the killing of animals uh, was often a ritual act, a ceremonial act at the end of which some part of the animal was absorbed. Uh, Even eating is an act of that kind. The strength of the animal is absorbed. And at at the same time, something like horns brings the specific power of the animal into the body of the person who hunted it or the person who, uh, you know, mastered it in some way. Now, these figures are all sitting on their toes and this will lead to uh, a a specific seal, this one over here, that is very interesting because here we find the person sitting on a seat uh, with the legs slightly crossed, but it's still on the toes. Uh, It may, it's got horns. It may be a three-headed figure. You can see uh, two heads on the side, two profile heads. Uh, The person who discovered this, John Marshall, called it the Pashupati seal. After Shiva, known as the Lord of Animals, because he's surrounded by these animals, a buffalo animals that we've seen on the seals, a rhino, a tiger, and an elephant. And here is a little stick man as well. Under his seat are two antelopes or goats that you can see over here. Now, if we surmise based on the visual evidence and looking at other civilizations of the time, we may say that this person is a master of animals. It's not so easy to jump to the conclusion that it is Shiva. It could be, but we are talking about a very early layer of civilization. Another factor which is also debated is whether the person is what is called ithiphalic. In other words, does he have an erect phallus that is being demonstrated or shown over here? We're not sure, but that's again a sign of Shiva. Many early images of Shiva show him with an erect phallus. And of course, we know that the linga is a phallic symbol of Shiva. So whether we can call it Shiva at this point or not, we know that this is a person who perhaps is generating power to control animals. And the early settlement of humans from the hunter food gatherer stage where they lived among animals and developed power to handle animals not only technological power but internal technologies of power um, is being ceremonialized once one comes to a settled uh, situation and this happens in many civilizations you form symbols you form contests of strength to show your power over the animals and make them into signs and symbols. So this could very well be a symbol of a powerful person who knows and shows his power by controlling animals through contests of strength. Um, And the means by which it is done is perhaps being shown in this specific posture. Why? Because even today, if we look at Hatha yoga texts, we find this posture is, 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 is related to an entire set of sequences that have to do with what is called the raising of the kundalini. Now, this is an image of somebody who's sitting in a similar posture, but not the same. This, this person is not sitting on the toes, but it is part of that family of postures There is one of them is called Shakti Chalini, in which the the sitting on the toes and pressing up on the perineum and breathing in a certain way ultimately leads to a shooting up of the kundalini and the piercing of what are called the mystic channels or chakras, leading to extra normal powers. And this is an image of that. And this, of course, highly developed. Terminology of chakras and things like that, we don't know whether Indus Valley had the same idea, but it is very possible that they had the idea of latent power that was being generated by these means of what we may call internal technologies. So, moving to that, just taking that uh, into account, we can think about that as some of the earliest wisdom technologies of India Now the other complex she- seal that I was showing you uh, <clears throat> is this one uh, we, we which which shows us a, a ritual a, a kind of perhaps a ritual of sacrifice and in this there is a person with horns showing the... Spe- special nature uh, of horns, maybe priest horns, uh, adulating another figure with horns, who is sitting in what looks like a cup, but is actually a tree. You can see these leaves that are leaves of the peepal tree, uh, the what Buddha sat under, the Bodhi tree. And behind this person is a ram or goat, and underneath this person are seven figures with interesting, uh, maybe head, uh, you know, uh, protrusions, hair protrusions. It could be females. It is. It has been thought of that these are all feminine figures. So a ritual of offering of a ram to perhaps a tree goddess, um, involving these seven other goddesses. So who are these seven goddesses? Again, we may surmise both based on what we just saw. That there are seven centers up the spine and on the fact of the later records showing some of the early goddess cults of India being what are called the Saptamatrika, the seven mothers. Seven mothers are a very early group of seven goddesses Now they have names, but earlier they didn't have specific names. They were just called the seven mothers that were worshipped at a very early stage. So this could very well be the origin of the seven mothers or saptamatrika. So another one like that. So we can consider this as the early beginnings of the Indian wisdom traditions at a point where we don't still know exactly what they are. But... Things change a little bit from 1500 BCE and we enter into what is called the Vedic phase. So what happens? We know that whatever we call the Indus Valley civilization gradually disappears archaeologically. We don't have the same archaeological records anymore. The people who were in these Indus Valley towns desert the towns. They move somewhere else. They move east and they move south, and they don't demonstrate the same level of technology anymore. Uh, So, And we also start finding new kinds of practices, particularly fire fire rituals. And we don't have that much archeological records of this time, but what we do have are textual records, textual records, which are the Veda, and later other things from the Veda. Now, I know that some people are asking uh, questions on chat, and I will address the questions at the end, not during this, so please maintain your questions and you can discuss among yourselves, but uh, I will handle uh, questions at the end of this talk. So who are these people? So there are three theories, as most of you are probably familiar because of the big amount of controversy around this issue. One is what is known as the invasion or immigration theory. Earlier, it started as the Aryan invasion theory that people from uh, the Northwest invaded uh, the Indus Valley and occupied India. Later, since it was found that there is no evidence of mass burials or any kind of war, uh, the idea started changing to the Aryan immigration theory, still retain the acronym A-I-T. Another theory is that of cultural assimilation. This theory says it's not really necessary for either invasion or immigration for a people to change their culture. Cultural change has occurred among people due to other factors, the rise of important leaders, for example, geographical change, cataclysms that cause one to lose faith in whatever one had faith in before, um, new kinds of ideas that normalize themselves, or there can be travel and incursion of ideas from outside without real immigration or invasion. So there is that theory as well. The third theory is called the out of India theory. And that theory is that Indus Valley itself was a Vedic civilization. And what we call the Indo-European people and the language system is really something that went out of India. Now, with regard to archeological and linguistic and today genetic plausibility, uh, it is much more between the immigration theory and the cultural assimilation theory that we stand today. There wasn't a very large amount of immigration, but there was significant immigration over a period of time. And there was cultural assimilation. There were cataclysmic geographic changes that took place around this time. And it is very possible that new ideologies found a fertile ground to establish themselves. And these ideologies integrated themselves with what was already there to some extent. To some extent, they didn't. And it's over time that we find this mixture gradually becoming what we call Indian wisdom traditions today. So we can see here some fire uh, you know uh, fire uh, 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 I mean altars <clears> or <throat> oh, what are the what are the Veda you know when we talk about the Veda what is the Veda the Veda are made up today we talk about four Vedas right So the earliest layer of Vedas is, the rigveda mandalas mandalas are like books and there are 10 of them that we think of today uh, of them we can date the second to the seventh as having a coherence that the others don't have the first ninth 10th etc 8 ninth, 10th etc are little different so, these are the earliest layer, and they're supposed to be dated according to mainstream dating from 1900 to 1500 BCE. The remaining Rigveda mandalas are considered to be from 1500 to 1000 BCE. Uh, okay, one second. Wait a minute. Sorry about that. I uh... jumped a little bit. Okay. Now, what are these mandalas? They are attributed to different families of rishis or seers who are the composers of these hymns um and mo- all these all these books that we are talking about the first set of hymns are to the fire god agni the next set the largest set is to indra and the remaining are to other and mixed gods uh, the ninth mandala or book is entirely composed of hymns to soma who is a god and a substance that is supposed to be the substance of immortality for the gods. And the 10th mandala introduces a number of new metaphors. For example, the metaphor of Purusha, also something known as the Nasadiya Sutta or Nasadiya is Na Asat. Not untrue, not true, not untrue, okay? Then there there are ideas like the idea of the Keshin or the long-haired one. These are new metaphors introduced in the Tenth Mandala. Now there are other Veda, Yajur, Sama, and Atharva Vedas. Yajur and Sama Vedas are mostly repetitions of the Rig Veda. And these Vedas are later, they come from around 1200 to 1000 B.C. um, and Atharva Veda is chronologically the last, contains a number of original hymns mixed in with magic spells. Uh, Some people believe that they either are the origin of Tantra, or they may have borrowed from already existing Tantric traditions that are non-Vedic. Maybe what we are looking at in the Indus Valley could have been the origins of Tantra. Other kinds of uh, Vedic material, or literature are known as Brahmanas and Aranyakas from the 8th to 6th century BCE, and the principal Upanishads, which begin around the 8th century BCE and go on to about the 2nd century CE. Now, what is in the corpus of the Veda? There is some coherence to the early Veda, and one can derive an entire system of internal practice, of what one might today call yoga. It's not merely for ritual practice. So what is the what are the ideas that are repeating over here? Uh, this image, of course, is a modern image. It's a painting by G.R. Santosh, a tantric painter, but it captures very nicely, I feel, some of the ideas of the Veda. And the Veda is talking about one God. So from the Indus Valley, where we are not sure whether they had the knowledge of a heaven, they might have had the knowledge of animistic power, just power that is latent in the body. Now we have a cosmology. In other words, a heaven and earth and a way of mapping the human to the cosmos. We also have the notion of monism, that there is one reality. So This is called in the Veda, Tad Ekam, that one. And many of you are familiar with the famous phrase, Ekam Sat Vipra Bahudha Badanti. There is one truth, but the wise men speak of it variously, speak of it as many ways. In fact, in the Veda, there is only one God. That God is the sun God. It is a solar mythology. All the other gods are various transforms and forms of the sun god. So what we find in the Veda is a cosmology of consciousness that ultimately is folded into the human being as a psychology, a psychology which maps to the cosmology. Microcosm is the same as the macrocosm. It also shows us two points of view. We may call this a heliocentric and a geocentric point of view. Heliocentric and geocentric point of view means that the heliocentric point of view is about looking at things from the viewpoint of the sun. From the viewpoint of the sun, there is only light. All is one. One sees only light, no duality. But from the viewpoint of the earth, there are dualities, day and night. So we find these two kinds of views and various hymns will take one view and some will take the other view. So this is it. Reality is divided in two zones in a vertical relation, a foundation above, which is the solar realm of everlasting light and the realm of alternations of day and night below, called Ahoratri, sometimes referred to as the two mothers or two sisters, and often spoken of as a wheel that goes round. Now, the mythology is actually that which connects all this cosmology and psychology. What is the mythology? The mythology is that the sun is hidden by the demons in the realm of the earth, and needs to be released. This is the duality, duality of days and nights are the cycling of the sun being released, entering into the earth, and then again, having to be released from the earth. So there are three interesting myths. Uh, The image over there is again by a modern painter, S.H. Raza. Uh, And I show it because it it again has a abstract relation to what we are talking about, a number of suns. And also we can think of these as the different stages of the sun moving from its, uh, you know, emergence to its descent into night. So one of these uh, systems of um, myths has to, it talks exactly what I told you about, about the descent of the sun into the earth and a capture by the forces of darkness. And then prayers to Indra to release the sun. Indra is helped by the other gods, Vayu, Rudra, and Agni, as well as by the goddesses, Saraswati, Ila, Dakshina, and Sarama. Another myth which is very interesting is the myth of the eight sons of Aditi. So now this solar realm, what I call the heliocentric realm, is often attributed to Aditi. Aditi meaning the undivided one. She's a goddess. She has no duality. Aditi, not divided. And she has sons. These sons are the Adityas. In other words, her self-formations or self-transformations, are the sons S-U-N-S, that are also the S-O-N-S. And in this myth, one of these myths, it's called the myth of Martanda, she gives birth to seven suns from the top of her head. So they rise, as it were, and they rise into the heavens. But the eighth sun is given from the bottom, and it falls and this eighth son is known as Martanda. Now, the word Martanda literally means the dead egg or the egg of death. And this egg of death is hymned off as the one that knows death, but also it is the one that aspires in a way to return to the family of the sons above. In a way, this is the earth. Martanda is the earth itself, the egg of death, which we experience through our mortality. See, so the word mortality is related to Martha, Martha, earth, martanda, the dead egg. So this cycling of entry into the night, entry into death, and the rebirth back into a life is ultimately connected with an aspiration to rise out of this duality and go back to the heavens. But it why is this being done? Why should we return if it was only to you know, leave the earth, leave this knowledge of death, this knowledge of duality and return? This is a question that we have to think about that is one at the center of Indian wisdom traditions. Finally, there is a third myth which we find in the uh, in the 10th mandala called the myth of the sacrifice of Purusha. The myth of the sacrifice of Purusha in the Purusha Sukta speaks of the cosmic being as the Purusha, the single person. And the cosmic person sacrifices itself into four parts though part of it remains unsacrificed above so these four parts become in a notorious hymn the four casts in space in terms of beings uh, the beings of wisdom the beings of power the beings of love and mutuality and the beings of service these are the kinds of beings. It's almost like a typology of beings. But of course, remember, they are not talking about heredity at all. It's not that you're born into one of these. They are talking about four kinds or types of beings. They are also talking about four types of seasons. So it's a temporal kind of uh, typology and a spatial typology that is being established there. So this divisioning is the movement from the one to the many and this condition of the many has to in a way understand its oneness it is one even when it is many how can it understand that that is the internal sense of this hymn now we move to what is the co- what is the internal cosmology of this it has to do with fire and the sun fire The sun, as I said, everything is the sun. The sun has become these other things, but it has primarily become the sources of light in its heliocentric realm and in the geocentric realm. During the day, it shines as the sun in the geocentric realm. At night, it becomes Indra who, with his lightnings, opens up the dark places and allows the release of the sun. But on Earth itself, it is present as fire, Agni. So what we find is the heliocentric uh, form of f- fire is called Surya Agni, Surya's Agni, and in the heaven, uh, the form, the f- the bearer of the form of Agni is Indra, and his kind of Agni is called. Vaidyuta Agni, this is the lightning, which is the form of electric fire, Vaidyuta Agni. In the mid-world, there is Antariksha, the gods of wind, Vayu, and of power, Rudra. And on earth, you have the fire god, Agni, because, and he has the form material fire, or Jara Agni. And the, this is the fire we light in the sacrifice to call the other fires. and. In a sense, from an inner point of view, our own internal fire of call to the divine has to connect with the intuitive fire of lightnings, Indra's lightnings, and that has to connect with the solar fire of the sun. This is the meaning of yoga as far as the Veda is concerned, the union of the three fires. So this is how it was understood in an esoteric sense but what we find is that the notion of the caste system in the 10th mandala when the 9th century has led to a fossilization of society the brahmins and the kshatriyas have colluded and they control a symbolic society marked by rituals of sacrifice you cannot do anything without a ritual so rituals of the state which are like could be rituals of kingship Rajya, uh, you know, kind of rituals, karma uh, or yagya, right? Where the coronation of the emperor or chakravartin is achieved through the Rajasuya or Ashwamedha yajya. Uh, there are rituals or yagyas of the community, which are called Shrauta yagyas. And there are rituals of the household called Grijya yagyas. These are later codified into the Shrauta and Grichya Sutras. And that's what structures society in the symbol of the Vedas and everybody is stuck in it. And it is in a sense uh, controlled by the collusion of the Brahmins and the Kshatriyas. So society is rigidly structured by Vedic symbols and it becomes hierarchic and now hereditary from father to son. Independence is controlled by these structures. The access to the divine is only through symbolic sacrifices. So in this kind of fossilized state, we start finding breakaway communities of teachers and students who withdraw to the periphery of society for philosophical inquiry from the ninth century onwards, B.C. onwards. This leads to a long period of inquiry from the ninth century right up to the 2nd century. We may see various kinds of schools. The Buddha and Mahavira are two of these figures. They are not all Upanishadic schools. They are of a variety of kinds. But some of them are what we today know as Upanishadic uh, systems, Upanishadic uh, uh, communities. Upanishads go from 800 BC to 200 BC or so, which is the early phase of the Upanishads. And what they do is in a certain sense, give us uh, the teaching of the Veda in a new language. What are the Upanishads? We get a certain classification of the Upanishads in an Upanishad of the 7th century called the Muktika Upanishad. That's why this is called the Muktika Canon. According to this Upanishad, there are 108 Upanishads. Now there are more, but it codifies 108 and it codifies 13 principal Upanishads. The earliest Upanishads are Brihadaranyaka and Chandogya Upanishads. What do they speak about? About something called Brahman. They also speak about two realms. They give us a certain method, which I'll discuss, called negative theology. They talk about meditation or dhyana, mantra, and breath control, prana. Other Upanishads are Taittiriya Upanishad, Aitareya Upanishad, Katha Upanishad, which introduces the word yoga for the first time and means by it a yoking of the senses, intelligence, and what is called Atman. We'll come to that in a moment. The union of the individual and the divine and reincarnation, a reincarnating self. The Isha Upanishad establishes two realms, just like we talked about a heliocentric and a geocentric realm. We have the realms of knowledge, or vidya, and ignorance, of vidya. And it establishes the need to know the two as one. Can we know both of them as a single reality? And the Mandukya Upanishad talks about conditions of consciousness, such as waking, dreaming, dreamless sleep, and a trance beyond all categories. So to look at this a little more clearly, and what Upanishads bring in terms of society and in terms of philosophy in this period, one of the first things one has to realize is that even in naming itself Upanishad, it is making a statement. Because Upanishad means literally to sit near. And to sit near is different from calling a a system of knowledge Veda. Veda literally means knowledge. In other words, it's canonizing itself. It is the knowledge. There is no question that can be asked of it. While to call something to sit near means that there are two. There is a student and a teacher. There is a knower and knowledge. There, There is a human and a divine and there is an indefinite distance between the two to sit near how near are we talking about this nearness is an intimacy intimacy is a non dual category it can be two and it can be one we don't know how far they are to each other so that's the the new innovation it is creating a space of inquiry It's creating a space for an I and a thou. So that is the first really important distinction of the Upanishads, even in naming themselves. Upanishads are getting rid of rituals and icons. One thing to remember is that the Veda also did not have any images of the gods. In the Veda, you had altars. And when one invoked the gods, the idea was that the gods came down and inhabited the entire space that was restricted for the ritual. In other words, they became everything in that space. But in the Upanishad, not only they do do not have any icons, they don't have any rituals either. They dispense with rituals. It becomes specifically inquiry-based. It is, its language itself is quasi-philosophical and not metaphorical and poetic as with the Veda. Its language is also paradoxical and we'll come to why that is the case as we go on. Paradox. A paradox goes beyond the mind. It actually tells you something which contains two opposites that are logically irreconcilable. And we find this the use of this in other wisdom traditions as well that may have been influenced by the Upanishads. For example, some of you may have heard of Zen Buddhism. And one of the main methods of teaching is what is called koan. Koan is a paradox. A koan is given to somebody, a student, by the teacher to contemplate. You cannot answer a koan in terms of a distinct answer. You can only experience it. The experience gives you something which is beyond logical understanding. So this is the kind of language that the Upanishad is introducing. The Upanishad also now gives a name to the one being that that was called Tadekam, and that was in a sense identified with the sun. Now, if we talk about the sun, and about a heliocentric system, one of the problems is that we immediately start thinking about a solar system. That's why even the states were called Rajya Mandala. Rajya Mandala, even the word Mandala is in the books of the Veda has to do with this notion of the Surya Mandala or planetary system. So Rajya Mandala is a replica of the Surya Mandala. There's an emperor at the center, There are vassal states around it. But if we de-center that one and call it a principle, Brahman, that is everywhere, then we have a different kind of attitude towards the divine. And that is one of the things that the Upanishad does. It also introduces a space for the individual and says that Brahman is the same as what is the essence of the individual. The essence of the individual is Atman. So the term Atman is introduced for the first time by the Upanishads and it is equated to Brahman. So again, remember we were saying, There's an equation or identity between the macrocosmos and the microcosmos in the Veda as well, but it easily gets diluted and distorted into a sense of a hierarchic system when you talk in symbolic terms. The Upanishad avoids that by doing this. It also has two realms. As I said, the two realms of the Veda are now seen as the realm of knowledge or vidya and the realm of ignorance or avidya. Therefore, setting up these, this system of duality as a problem of knowledge. How are we to arrive at knowledge with a capital K, which is not the knowledge that we have? Our knowledge is constrained by individual limits and boundaries mental knowledge is always inferential knowledge we don't know anything except for who we are ourselves in a essential way by self-evidence uh, i don't know who you are except for what my senses give me and what i infer the picture i make of you so that is an avidya according to uh, the upanishads And how are we to arrive at a state in which everything that is known is known by identity, by one's sense of being that, that becomes one of the projects of the Upanishads. I will jump this and we can consider some of this later, except for the last part, that two goals emerge from the Upanishads. One is an escape from the ignorance called moksha, and the other is a transformation of the ignorance or an existence within the ignorance in a enlightened way of action, which is called Jivan Mukti. Now, we move on to what is happening in the rest of society at this time. So, as I said, these kind of teachings belong to the periphery or borders of society. They don't give us a solution for society. They give us a solution to a kind of a esoteric community in the borders of society, communities of inquiry that form ashramas. So we start seeing that the lessons of spiritual liberation that are being generated here are being taken into society by new schools. But these schools cannot now bring this esoteric knowledge to people who are not really open to it, who don't understand it. They they feel that higher knowledge is completely controlled by priests and Brahmins and, and a certain kind of system, a Vedic system. So the new reform that occurs from 500 BCE to 200 BCE is that of schools that are now, now pragmatic and what one might call empirical. So empirical empiricism and pragmatism means Let's start with your experience as it is. You don't need to assume anything. You don't need to assume there's a God. You don't need to assume there's a state, heliocentric or Vidya or whatever. Let's look at your condition right now. Is it a good condition? And the answer is no. We live in a condition of bondage. We live in a condition of suffering. So what can we do to get out of this condition? These traditions... are traditions that give you stepwise methods and solutions. A stepwise enumeration is called Sankhya. So this is how the whole language of Sankhya, which is an algorithmic language, a language of process, one step after another, begins coming into the Indian wisdom traditions. this kind of following is a certain method which is already introduced in the Upanishads, particularly in the Brihadaranyaka Yaka Upanishad, as what we might call an apophatic method. What is this method? Let us take a look at this method. There are two ways of approaching spirituality or that which is beyond. One of them in modern religious studies is called cataphatic and the other is called apophatic. The cataphatic method is positive. In other words, we may focus on an image or metaphor of the divine. We may have a guru, or we may have a idol or icon of the divine, and that has qualities that appeal to us and through which we can arrive at something greater than ourselves. But we can follow another method, which is the cataphatic or negative method. The cataphatic method tells us, let us not identify with what we think we are. Let's go beyond that. Let's subtract that and take one step further. And so we find that in the Brihadaranyaka Upanishad, which is the earliest Upanishad, there is a passage that gives us a description of brahman which is first cataphatic and then apophatic it says the form of that being is as follows like a cloth dyed with turmeric or like gray sheep's wool or like the scarlet insect called indragopa or like the tongue of a fire or like a white lotus or like a flash of lightning he who knows it as such Attain splendor like a flash of lightning. Now, therefore, the description of Brahman, not this, not this. In other words, neti, neti. Because there is no other and more appropriate description than this, not this. Now it's name, the truth of truth. The vital force is truth, and it is the truth of that. So this Subtraction, detachment, taking oneself away from the identification with phenomenal experience. This is an empirical method. It is easier to tell somebody who doesn't want to believe anything that you can start by practicing self-detachment. And you don't need to believe anything. Eventually, you will come to some experience. This is the method of the Buddha. And you find the Buddha's teaching codified as the four noble truths. And the eightfold path. Most of you are familiar with this. The four noble truths enumerate the stages of a practice. It does not say all life is suffering as a metaphysical truth. It is not telling you go about making everybody believe that all life is suffering. It's telling you, if you want an empirical path to experience truth, first focus on this fact that life is suffering. First, keep your mind on that. If you keep your mind on that, that will help you to detach yourself from this suffering life. Second, attachment and craving are the causes of suffering. So you can actually observe that and detach yourself from attachments and cravings. The third, there is a way to the extinction of suffering. This result is called nibbana. Now, this is perhaps the most important of the four. And I'll tell you why. There is a fourth, and that is the eightfold path is the way to nibbana. Now, the eightfold path, as you know, you can see it down there on the screen. Right view, right resolve, right speech, right action, right livelihood, right effort, right mindfulness and right concentration. It gives you a regime for life. It's a principle of living. In other words, you have to practice this in your everyday life. It is not just you sit for five minutes and meditate. You do this all the time. You practice this attention all the time. So that is a regime of living. But there is a meditation method also that is being given to you in these Four Noble Truths. It is an apophatic method. And that apophatic method is contained in the third noble truth. That apophatic method is contained in the single word Nibbana. Or what is that? The word Nibbana immediately evokes an image. Nibbana literally means the extinction of a flame. And at that time, it meant the extinction of an oil lamp. So you have an oil lamp with a wick that's burning, and you turn it off. That is called Nibbana. Even today, in Hindi, you'll say Nibbana. Bhatti nibado, uh, Nibbana in Bengali. Nibbiedau, right? So this turning off, extinguishing the flame, is the meditation. Now, why is it a meditation? It's a meditation because it's telling you to focus on yourself and your life as a process the lamp that the light that you see that is being lit in a candle flame or an oil lamp flame is not a substantial thing it looks substantial it looks like a substance it looks like a solid thing but it is not solid it is just made up of moments of burning of the wick So if we are to consider our life in that way, it's a shift from substantiality to processuality. How are we to look at ourselves as a process? The more we can turn our attention to that, to seeing that we are a generation of consciousness from moment to moment by a process of momentum that is built and attached through memory and desire. The more we can do that, the closer we come to recognizing that this is not a substance that we call ourselves. It is a a process that can be put an end to. And that meditation ultimately helps us to put an end to that. And what happens when we put an end to that? The Buddha will not answer. He'll say, find out for yourself because this is an empirical process now in the second sermon he says something similar and that is a, that is a meditation that relates to what i just talked about with regard to the turning out of the flame is pointing to five constituents of experience these are called the skandhas what are they they are The body, the emotions, the thought, the habitual actions called samskaras, and the senses. See, all these are impermanent. So there is already an understanding that there's something called the self, which the Upanishad has introduced. And the definition of the self is that which is permanent in the human. And so, what the Buddha is going to say is, let's look at the constituents of our experience. Is the body permanent? Look at it as a process. You'll see it is not permanent. So, it is a detachment, neti. Are the emotions permanent? No, neti. Are the thoughts permanent? Neti. So, this is how we go behind each one of our our forms of experience till we come to something which is none of these. What is that? No answer is given. It is only much later that Buddhist metaphysics is telling us that Buddha taught the non-existence of the Atman, Anatman. But that's not what the Buddha is teaching. The Buddha is teaching you must de-connect, de-identify your sense of self from the things in you that are temporary that's all that he's saying let's move on to another such system this is sankhya and sankhya i'm showing this uh, image of patanjali of course patanjali is a yoga teacher and he comes from a much later phase but yoga is based on sankhya and in sankhya we find that there is an analysis of the constituents of experience similar to what the Buddha is doing in the second sermon, except his constituents of experience are all mental. You have the sense objects, the sense, as you see down, down there, the Tanmatra and Bhutas. Uh, You have the organs of action and the organs of perception, sense organs. You have the sense mind that synthesizes these sense impressions, you know, Those who know a little bit about Western philosophy know that Kant is carrying out a very similar analysis in his critique of pure reason. He calls it the aesthetic synthesis, how we synthesize our sense experience. Behind it is the ego, behind it is the cogito or the mental rationality, rational part. And behind it is nature itself out of which this arises because there is something called purusha, which is pure consciousness within this medium. Sankhya is a dual system, duality system. It is telling you all this because it wants you, just like in Buddhism, to focus on these constituents of experience and deny them say, this is not Purusha, that is not Purusha, all this is not really uh, permanent or not really uh, that which is the self or that which is the truth. Uh, And at the end of that, it finds out that what remains is a pure witnessing self known as Purusha. So these are the kind of forms of teaching that go into society at this time, these are the last uh, passages of the Sankhya Karika. Thus, from the practice of the 25 tattvas, these 25 principles that we see, see over here are called tattvas. There is wisdom of the form, wisdom of the form or kind. There is no sense of being, na no asmi, or no I am. No sense of possession, na may or no I have, and no sense of person, na aham or no I, arises, which is pure, absolute, and free from error and doubt. By this means, Purusha, like a pure witness, beholds nature, which has ceased from productivity and from the seven forms of evolution under the influence of its freedom. Purusha has the awareness. She has been seen by me." In other words, phenomenal experience and its constituents has been seen and becomes indifferent. The other has the awareness, I have been seen and ceases to act. Even there is connection, there is no motive for evolution. So we see that these are empirical forms that are coming into the society and giving people there a sense that they can be liberated from the stranglehold of a symbol symbol a symbolic system that has completely uh, subordinated them but there is a problem with both these systems upanishads are not giving us a solution to society they are giving us a solution at the borders of society a new kind of community at the periphery of society, intentional communities. These empirical schools are not giving us a solution to society either. They are telling us the individual in a society can become liberated, but they are not functional in society at that point. They are out of it. They know how to get out. They know how to get moksha, be liberated, but they can't change society. So what happens to society at this time? Now, I will jump this. This is yoga, but yoga is based on Sankhya. And the Yoga Sutra is a relatively late text coming from about the 4th or 5th century. We start finding within society, as a result of these teachings of the Upanishads at the periphery, of Buddhism, of Jainism, of Sankhya, of Yoga, there is a disturbance to the stasis of society. And to make up for that, there is an even greater orthodoxy that arises through what are called the Dharma Shastras, the canonical texts of how to be in the world, dharma texts. And so there is this way by which society is trying to regroup and become conservative under the onslaught of these new teachings of liberation. And along with it comes another kind of dharma text, a dharma text which I call counter-cultural, and that is the Mahabharata and the Gita. So here we see Dharma literature originates in the Brahmanas of the Veda. Dharma sutras are derived from these, from 500 BCE onwards. But Dharma shastras come a little later. You see, they come from around the 2nd century to 3rd century CE, etc. So we are looking at a class of literature that spans from around 500 BCE to about the 5th century CE. And around this time, so we have Upanishads happening, we have the Buddhism and Sankhya Yoga, things like that happening. We have a conservative trend in the society to hold itself together. And around this time, we have a new sect that arises. This sect is called the Bhagavata sect. And this sect is gradually gaining power and has tremendously creative people within it who influence a text that has already been written in the fourth century called the Mahabharata. So, Mahabharata is a story of war. But when the Bhagavatas come in and enlarge this text, they turn it into a story that has behind it wisdom and this wisdom that it uh, foregrounds is another kind of dharma. So it is a dharma text. Mahabharata is a dharma text and the Gita is the crest jewel of Mahabharata as a dharma text. Mahabharata is an epic of close to 100,000 shlokas. It is a literature as dharma text. It is telling us about the complexity of dharma and the paradoxicality of dharma. Now, without going into everything, I will just point to three ways or four ways by which it does that. Firstly, it's telling us that life is saturated with the supernatural. That whatever we think we have control over, can be overridden by gods, demons, rishis, animals, and all kinds of extra normal and extra human forces. Secondly, it's telling us that desire cannot be completely gotten rid of. And throughout the Mahabharata, you see in sort of critical moments, desire comes and intrudes And changes things in such a way that dharma becomes very difficult to decide. It becomes indecisive, uncertain. Thirdly, destiny complicates the interpretation of law. We see this again in the Mahabharata. There are so many peculiar coincidences. These coincidences make things very difficult. Even you cannot identify something because something else is named the same thing. Or you have two things which could both take a certain, uh, you know, uh, I mean, place as far as the dharma texts are concerned. And so destiny complicates things. And the fourth is that they bring up this idea of yuga, yuga dharma, the age and the ending of an age. Each age that comes to an end and it classifies itself as the ending of the Dwapara Yuga, the, the third age. Everything becomes muddy because the dharmas are breaking up and you have too many mixtures that take place. Now, literally speaking, we have this kind of mixture that's happening in society. As I just said, there are the Upanishads, there is the Veda. There are, There is Sankhya, there is Yoga, there is Buddhism, there are other schools and they are creating confusion within society. Bhagavatism has come up as a new school and this is situating Krishna as an avatar. This is a new idea, entirely new idea. The idea of the avatar is the central figure in, uh, in, 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 in this uh, book. Krishna as an avatar. So we find that the Gita brings these ideas together in a philosophical form. The uh, The crest jewel is the Gita. Firstly, it challenges the sacrifice to the Vedic gods and replaces the meaning of sacrifice as works offered to the supreme divine, here identified with Krishna. Secondly, it calls itself an Upanishad. Every chapter is announcing itself as a yoga and it's calling itself an Upanishad. Thirdly, it is revising the idea of Sankhya and calling it Jnana Yoga. Fourthly, it's revising the idea of yoga and calling it Karma Yoga. And fifthly, it's teaching a new path, a path of devotion bhakti yoga to the supreme divine known as krishna now it's metaphysics for doing that is of course the central teaching casting uh, casting what what is dharma dharma is not to be found in books dharma is to be found in the divine casting aside all dharmas come to me alone i will liberate you from all sin do not fear so krishna is the avatar who is the emblem of what is loka sangraha, holding together of the world, unity. So this power is also inside us as Yamin, the, the knower within or the controller within. This idea of the divine as a transcendent being a human teacher or avatar an embodiment incarnation as something inside us, Antaryamin, as something that can be an image, also Archa. This is a Bhagavata slash Pancharatra idea, a new idea that is introduced by these new sects. Now, what is happening over here is that this sect is proposing that there is a union of all these because these things are one. And in actually trying to unite this, we come to a conservation of life in action. There is yoga in action that occurs. So this in an essence, in a nutshell, is how the Dharma idea is being revised by the Mahabharata and the Gita. Now, I won't go into this, the cosmology of the Gita. It's uh, something which is uniting the whole notion of Vidya and Avidya through a complication, a complexification of the Purusha-Prakriti scheme of Sankhya. We can note that and, and continue or carry on. Now, since I know I am running out of time, I will touch on what is going to happen at this point, and then I'll open myself to questions. There is a good part left. So I'm going to run through my slides for your benefit. From 400 BC to 400 CE, in this period, there is what is known as the Hindu synthesis that takes place. This is based on the Upanishadic idea of the one infinite behind the integration of various sects, all so lots of sects have come up. Mainly, they're going to be integrated around three figures, Vishnu, Shiva, and Devi. So they're going to form something known as the Puranas, that are texts that relate to these three uh, deities, and the Agamas, which are non-Vedic integrations, That relate to particularly Shiva, also all three of them: Vishnu, Shiva, and Devi. There are agamas of all three, and there are Puranas of all three that arise during this period. Krishna is an amalgamation. So we see, for example, I'm drawing on a scholar called Gavin Flood. I would recommend his book called An Introduction to Hinduism. We see how Different sects, Vishnu in the Veda uh, breaks up into Vaikhanasa, Pancharatra, and Bhagavata. Uh, and then the Abhira cult of Krishna Gopala unites with it to form Puranic Vaishnavism and the Vaishnava Sampradayas and a modern Vaikhanasa branch. These are all the various kinds of Vaishnava teachings. Uh, Similarly, we find with Shaivism, there's a lineage that is coming from the Veda that really crystallizes in the Shvetashvatara Upanishad in the 2nd century BC. And we find the emergence of Shiva as a uh, a, a new god, a a, a supreme divine. But we also have non-Vedic sources and non-Puranic sources that remain on the periphery they are called Atimarga and Mantra Marga schools, and particularly the Pashupatas are very important because they have a lot of influence in Indian courts, and lots of North Indian temples <clears throat> are dominated by Pashupatas. The Mantra Marga people <clears throat> break up into Kapalikas and two systems, Kaula and Trika. This is Kashmir Shaivism and Shaiva Siddhanta, which is South Indian uh, Shaivism today, most of the South Indian temples to Shiva follow this Shaiva Siddhanta today. And Devi, this uh, image is a very early image of Durga from the first century of first to second century. You see, she doesn't have any weapons. She has six hands. Uh, two of them have the sun and moon in them. And she is strangulating the buffalo demon. She's not killing it with a weapon, she's actually killing it with hands. What does this remind us of? The contests of strength of the Indus Valley, which are in a way coming back now as the goddess over here. Local goddess cults, which are animistic, propitiated by blood sacrifice and fertility rituals. Um, And can be various natural phenomena like stones, poles, weapons, diagrams, stylized female genitals, rivers, lakes, trees, and groves. Or they can be actual images. They are amalgamated into this idea of the goddess who now becomes the counterpart of the Deva, Deva and Devi. Or also has her own texts known as the Tantras. These goddesses are of two kinds, either we we may call them hot and cool forms, either goddesses of nurture or goddesses of fierceness. So we find Durga as a goddess of fierceness, Lakshmi, this is a very early image, first century BC in a Buddhist context in Sanchi, where we see Lakshmi being watered by two elephants and she is a goddess of nurture, while Durga and Kali are goddesses of power. So with this, I will move to the end of my talk because we established the three major lineages that ultimately are fielded by the Gupta kings. This is Chandragupta II, particularly initiated at the site of Udaygiri near Bhopal where we find a cave site of all these gods, the coexistence of cultic traditions, Shiva, Durga, the Saptamatrikas, and Kartikeya. It is principally dedicated to Vishnu, and we find the avatars uh, of Vishnu, the 10 avatars. Puranas are written around this time, tantras are written, and cosmologies are created around each of the gods. This is Vishnu uh, in Udaygiri, for example. Now, as you all know, over the centuries after this, we are still right at the fifth century. These traditions develop specializations, and many other sects and many texts. Uh, Vishnu Purana, the Tamil Alvars, who are supposed to have been behind what is known as the Bhagavata Purana, in the tenth century. Um, Narada Bhakti Sutras, Sri Vaishnavism or Vishishtadvaita of Ramanuja, other Vaishnava paths, other Krishna sects, and finally Gaudiya Vaishnavism, uh, Achintya Veda Veda in in Bengal, which has Sahajiya sects, uh, Tantric connections, as well as the intense Bhakti traditions of Sri Chaitanya. All this happens over the centuries. Mm. Similarly, we have Shiva with Puranas, Agamas, then we have Shiva Siddhanta, uh, the notion of uh, Nataraja, and we have Kashmir Shaivism, which also, like the Gita, transforms Sankhya and makes it monistic, has a kind of overall. A uh, single divine scheme to it. Uh, similarly, we have the Devi Mahatmyam that's written around this time. Durga comes into prominence and the Devi cults develop two different sects. As I said, they are called Shrikula and Kali Kula. Tripura Sundari worship in the south. This is an image follows Shrikula while Kali worship in Bengal, Nepal, Orissa, and Kashmir are uh, the Kali Kula. So we find a combination of the two in the 10 Mahavittas. Now other schemes as, as well continue, which I will not elaborate on, but we start finding over the centuries, heterodox and synthetic combinations of all these schools, And by the time we come to the Mughal period, we find that there are coexisting traditions that see each other as to some extent competing, but to some extent as as porous coexistences. They have different goals. So Shaivism's goal is to become a Shiva. It believes that each individual can become one or the same as Shiva. Vaishnavism's goal is to be in relation, in intimate relation with Krishna or Vishnu. Shaktism's goal is to be possessed by the Devi and to enjoy her exercise of special powers or siddhis and also bhoga, which is enjoyment uh, of, of the Divine Mother inside us and through us. Advaita Vedanta wants to merge in an extra-cosmic, formless, transcendental. So, summarizing the pre-modern wisdom traditions, we find that there are plural spiritual goals, supporting plural cosmologies and metaphysics, that each foregrounds its own goal and backgrounds others, but believe in their right to exist, based on the tenet of transcendental pluralism which is coming partly from the Veda. We saw that right in the beginning. The truth is one, the sages speak of it variously, partly from the Upanishad, which is repeating that in the idea of Brahman, that is one infinite, infinite, one imminent divine Brahman and infinite Atmans that are nothing but the Brahman. Jainism that talks about Anikantavada, and the idea of Swadharma and Swabhava in the Gita, and Ishta Devata in the Tantra, which means that each individual is unique, but it's a unique aspect of the self-expression of Brahman. Now, something starts changing in the modern period. In the 13th century, we have the arrival of Islam. I, I want to Just point to the interesting images. For example, in this image over here, this is a Mughal image. We find different sects that are all coexisting over here, a a, a kind of a colloquy of sannyasis. This could be a Shaivite, this could be a Vaishnavite, his head is shaved. This is a Sufi. Um, You can have other uh, sects, tantrics, etc. They're all. Uh, sharing the same fire, and they're sh- sharing ideas. Um, by the time of Akbar, this image is from the Akbar Nama, it shows his Ibadat Khana, it shows different religions, it shows Jesuits, it shows Hindus, Jains, uh, uh, and other religions. 13th century is the arrival of Islam, 16th century the arrival of Christianity, In the 18th century, the arrival of modernity with the colonizers, these are bringing a new kind of religion, the Abrahamic religions, which are marked by exclusivism. The idea of exclusivism is not only is there one absolute truth, there is only one expression of this one truth. It's a mental idea. The mind is a peddler in exclusivism. If one thing is true, other things can't be true. So modernity also, which makes a break between religion and secularism, is a kind of exclusivism. It's a displacement of religious exclusivism to a secular exclusivism, a secular ideology of the enlightenment that believes that there is one knowledge, we will all arrive at that through science. Science will piece together the knowledge of the world so that ultimately we'll be all enlightened. So when these ideologies come to India, pluralism is confronted by exclusivism and it finds subtly the pressure to arrive at a single absolute expression. What is India's response to this? The first responses come from the Bengal Renaissance in the 19th and early 20th centuries. It comes in, Western scholars have called it Neo-Vedanta. But Neo-Vedanta is more diverse than we can contain in a single umbrella. Mostly Neo-Vedanta is a return of Advaita Vedanta. Advaita Vedanta is not just an exclusivism, it's an inclusive exclusivism. There is a scholar called Paul Hacker and another uh, of his uh, students who has created, written much more sophisticated text called India and Europe. I'll uh, draw your attention to this text that has discussed this notion of neo-Vedanta and of Advaita Vedanta as an inclusivism as the opposite of exclusivism. Why is it an inclusivism? Because what it says is that all the yogas and all the schools are included in it as stages. It will say, first practice karma yoga in a desireless way so that you lose your desire and your ego. Then practice bhakti yoga so that you may have greater uh, closeness to the divine. Your, your energies and your passions are turned towards the divine. Then when you really have some kind of experience of Ishwara, you realize that Ishwara is a kind of a self-presentation of something that is beyond. beyond it. You have an Atman, which is a self, But you can erase all these in a transcendental Brahman who is one and infinite but erases all differences. The metaphor of the ocean or the mountain is often given for this. In other words, all rivers run into the ocean and they are erased in it. The mountain, all paths lead to the mountaintop and they disappear once you get to the mountaintop this kind of an image of the rivers and the oceans was actually given by vivekananda in the parliament of world religions mm. other teachers who have taught this kind of path of advaita vedanta as an in inclusivism are people like rammohan roy with brahmoism radha krishna uh, radha krishna uh, vivekananda shivananda and Swami Chinmayananda of the Vishwa Hindu Parishad <clears throat> from which arises an attempt to create a single, exclusive, all-inclusive, rational ideology. This is We are facing this in our modern times. There is one single Hinduism, so to say, which defines the appropriate Buddhism, Jainism, everything. Everything is that one thing. Now, there is an alternative that has been suggested. This alternative solution is Ramakrishna's solution. Ramakrishna had all these experiences separately, but he did not go to a unified source that erased these experiences. He talked about a kind of consciousness that he called Vijnana, and that is spoken of in the Upanishads and the Gita. And which is paradoxical. It is a state of consciousness in which the many and the one both coexist as one. Remember, we were talking about Vidya and Avidya being both in one. The heliocentric and the geocentric are not two in the view of the divine who has become both of them. It experiences both as one we experience only one of this or the other of this. So this is what Ram Krishna meant by Jotho Moth, Toto, pot. He gave two metaphors for it, one of the chameleon and the other of the dyer. For lack of time, I'll only mention the dyer. The dyer has a vat with dye in it. Different people come asking for their cloth to be dyed different colors. So when they say yellow, it's a magic vat. He puts the cloth in it and says yellow, it comes out yellow and he gives it to this person. Another one comes out green, he gives it to this person. Finally, somebody who's watching this dyer comes to him and he says, what color do you want your cloth? And he says, I wanted the color that's inside that vat. So he's stumped, he says, well, you have to tell me which color. He says, no, no, whatever colors inside that fat. If we think about this, we'll see that it is a problem of medium. It's a problem of dimension. So long as you are in a certain dimension, you can have different colors or you can have no color at all. But if you want all those colors at once with their distinctiveness, as well as the no color, as well as a unified color, then you need to be in another dimension. Today, we can think of the hologram, for example, which is like the symbol of another dimension. This is the kind of consciousness that Ram Krishna called Vijnana. And after Krishna, we have another teacher, Sri Aurobindo, who reiterates this solution. Ramakrishna said, it's not easy to get to this solution. He says that can we be this one infinite that is known in infinite directions? Only special souls called Ishvara Kotis can be like that. But Sri Aurobindo says everybody can be like that. This is the future evolution of humankind, the paradoxical goal of its spiritual journey. And so what Krishna, the Upanishads and the Gita called Vijnana Sri Aurobindo calls supermind. He says it can be reached by everyone, but they have to stabilize the intermediate stages leading to it. And that requires simultaneous plural approaches and openness to a paradoxical goal to transform us in its image. So that is uh, in an essence, a possibility of the future when we think of the crisis of spirituality in modern india so i'll stop here and if <clears throat> if there's time or if there's uh, any wish for some more discussion i'll be happy to open myself to it
1: thanks a lot Devashish, it was a great enlighten from, enlightenment for me and I, I will definitely have many people have a lot of questions there. Yeah. and if time uh, will maybe just uh, it's 12.45 now up at uh, 1 and uh, we will share uh, Devashish's uh, email address. okay with you Devashish if people have other questions they can write to you Sure, absolutely Sure. yeah, please please go ahead, yeah. You can unmute yourself and ask the question.
2: No,
0: I couldn't hear. There was a question asked, but I couldn't hear. I think it might be better if the person puts it in in the chat box and one person reads it out. That might be better because I couldn't hear at all.
1: Sure. Good afternoon, sir. It is one of the nice presentations I have ever attended, uh, actually um, uh, in a very short span of uh, uh, 1 hour 45 minutes. Actually, most of the things uh, we have understood and some of the things have also gone above it. Sir, if, is it possible to share the PowerPoints or theme of uh, the presentations?
0: I can share it to uh, share it with uh, with uh, 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 my host Prabhat. Yes, and, yes. I'll, uh, yeah, I'll, send, I'll send it to him, and sure. uh, you know those who are interested. Actually, it will the PowerPoint because it's been recorded, so it will be on YouTube as well. Yeah. The, the entire talk with the entire PowerPoint will be on YouTube. Yes. I think some people have already asked questions, Babhat. If you don't
1: mind, can you
0: uh,
1: sure? Okay, read some of them out to me. Uh, yeah. Hari Mohan Pillai is asking, "What about evolution of thought as mentioned by Jiddu Krishnamurti?" So
0: Jiddu Krishnamurti, I don't know about evolution of thought, but he is talking about, you know, a state of self-reliance. He's talking about a self of unconditioning, how to uncondition yourself. Now, unconditioning is also something that the enlightenment is teaching. Science is a kind of unconditioning itself. It's saying we have to take out our biases, we have to take out our emotional attachments, then we can be objective. Jiddu Krishnamurti is going one stage further and saying, yes, we have to take out our biases, we have to take out our Uh, you know, emotional attachments, we can do it partly through dialogue by actually listening to others and seeing where our biases are coloring our thought. But finally, we have to arrive at a kind of clarity of witnessing, you know? So in a way, I don't see Jindu Krishnamurti's teaching as anything exceptional or new. It's new only from the viewpoint of Modern understanding of thought, but sankhya was teaching this, Buddha was teaching this a long time back. Thank you. Okay. One Anything else, Prabhat?
1: Any other questions? Uh, I'm, yeah, I'm just seeing uh, any other questions. Now there are more uh, comments rather than questions. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, okay. No, the, there are no more questions on the chat there, but uh, we still have a little time—five, uh, ten minutes. I'm I'm asking uh, somebody like Lakshman Jayaratne. He is from Sri Lanka. He is. Uh, I
0: think some people have put up their hands. Prabhat, I see
1: sure.
0: Harpreet's Harpreet, hands are up. Harpreet, would you like to...
1: Yeah, Harpreet, yes.
0: Yeah.
3: Actually, thank you, Debra. You know, it has also been a long association with you, uh, now almost, you know, uh, closing to a decade and, um, and understanding these thoughts. Um, so I, I thank the organizers also for this. My question was more to do with this con- continuity that you are talking about. That uh, And like I found one insight about the sitting on the toes pose is more to do with Muramandi in, in, in dance, in the South Indian dance, and also the asan in one of the Hatha Yoga, this thing. So what could be possibly a method that we... Uh, that we, with which we study this continuity and feel. And one more concept is about uh, unity and and the concept of Brahman. I mean, this I open to everyone. I mean, since we talk of multiple truths and we we talk of experiencing, so what do we experience? Is is the feeling of Brahman really a feeling of unity? Uh, So this is what was one comment and another is the method of continuity uh, with which, which I'm seeking for.
0: Yeah, so Harpreet, I I think your question about unity is a really important one as far as this entire discussion is concerned. Um, When we use the word unity, this is exactly the problem. It's a problematic term. The term unity, unity, integrality, um, oneness, these are all, they have to be understood in a very complex way, you see. They have to do with the evolution of thought or of mind. In a sense, you see. because when we use the word like, what is we are looking at diversity, we are looking at differences, pluralism, and we are looking at unity, uh, Brahman, the unity of Brahman. Uh, you know, the whole thing boils down to this: what what I ended with, right? In modern religious thought, this is known as perennialism. Perennialism is saying that there is one reality, everybody is talking about it differently, but they're experiencing the same thing. They're all experiencing the same thing. But when we actually put all the descriptions side by side, as soon as it comes at least into the world of descriptions, it's different. Are we experiencing even the same thing? So the perennialists Uh, you know, some of the really advanced contemporary perennialists, they've coined the term pure consciousness event, PCE, pure consciousness event. The pure consciousness event is supposed to be that element of the plural experiences of the divine that we cannot even express, but we are experiencing the same thing. There's something we are experiencing, which is the same, but we can't even utter it. As soon as we utter it, we utter it differently, you know. So there's the notion in, again, in Western uh, religious thought and spiritual thought, there's the notion of university. University, it's a duns Scotus's idea. And modern in modern times, Gilles Deleuze has used the term, university. University means, The same thing that we are talking about. There is only one, but that one is infinite and everything is unique. It speaks in infinite tongues. So we either have to accept our pluralism or we have to arrive at an experience where the pure consciousness event is a waking experience for our plurality. A waking experience for our plurality. We live that oneness and that plurality at the same time. This is a supramental manifestation. And we can't get there right away, but we can aspire for it. We can move in that direction. We can hold the plurality. We can try to increase our consciousness to be able to arrive at forms of oneness that don't reduce plurality, but at the, in the name of oneness. This is a big problem through the centuries. Any attempt to reduce plurality in the name of oneness is a fascism. And that's what's happening even today, even as we speak. What we are calling Hinduism is really an attempt to reduce plurality. You cannot reduce plurality. You have to find the unity outside it. You have to come to the paradoxical point.
3: Thank you. This was very fascinating, very, very important for me to absorb. I'll I'll be with this. Thank you so much.
1: There's one uh, last question from Raja Vishak. Sir, are the Riddhi Siddhis scientifically proven? Are there any current scientific research going on for this? Riddhi Siddhis.
0: Oh, oh, Siddhis. Are the Siddhis scientifically proven? Mm
1: -hmm. The
0: Siddhis are scientifically proven to those who have Siddhis. This would be Vivekananda's answer. You don't look for scientific proof outside yourself. The entire yoga tradition is for self-experience. Who cares what anybody else has? If you want it, have it. Try it out for yourself, prove it to yourself. If you can have it, it exists. If you can't, if you can't have it, it doesn't exist for you. May I ask a question, please? Sampath here. Yes, Sampath. Uh, Yeah. Uh, Such a wonderful lecture and I really enjoyed the tradition being put in historical perspective and in an order. In uh, There is a big tradition of atheism also as part of the Indian wisdom, isn't it? Where does that fall, Professor? Well, it's called Lokayata. It's, It's not a big tradition. It's a small tradition, Lokayata. But it is given its place. It's given a place as a darshan. So, you know, the problem with Lokayata as a darshan, you see, the, the, this is again, we come back to exclusivism and inclusivism. Um, atheism as we use it in the West is a problem of belief. It's actually a mental province. Do we believe in God or we do we not believe in God? All that I was talking about is not of the province of belief. It's a province of practice and experience. So you can When we talk of Lokayata, it's not atheism. It's not, I don't believe in God. It's, I don't want to go in that direction. That's what it means. It means, I practice a principled absence from spiritual inquiry. Because this is a big difference between these exclusivist traditions and the entire field of Indian yoga. If you have 20 people in your neighborhood, who are all claiming that they've had experiences of the divine, you cannot actually say the divine does not exist without trying it out. Mm -hmm. You see, to say God exists or does not exist is a belief, only belongs to a culture that does not have a tradition of experience. If you've had numbers of people who've had experiences, it's a transpersonal psychological field. It it isn't a field of belief anymore. You cannot say there's theism or atheism at the level of belief. It's either I choose to practice or I choose not to practice. I choose to remain what I am. That's what it is. I read a sentence which said... uh, the, you know, absence of proof is not the proof for absence or something. Yes, correct. So yes. John John Amendola, John had a question. For a long time, he Nam- had his hand up. So, John, please, yes.
2: Namaste. Thank you. Uh, do you have, is it possible that we could have
0: uh, the copies of this these slides that are I, I was listening to your lecture your,
2: for the yoga psychology class before this, uh, several hours before, and I thought, wow, these are amazing pictures and, and uh, graphics that make these
0: concepts I wasn't getting very clear. Yeah, John, uh, this, this entire lecture will go on YouTube. It's, it's, it's been recorded. So certainly you can see it there. And you know, you're in my class, so we can talk about the images uh, separately as well. Thank you. Yes, yes Anjan. Yeah,
2: hi Devban. As usual, your presentation was excellent, like all the other ones. So my simple question is that, how do we integrate, amalgamate all these with modernism? See, modernism in a way is saying that everybody's experience is separate, Everybody's experience is personal, it's all relative truth, and all these ancient wisdom, there is some sort of lack of integration there, which where we are dividing into nations, people, races, and it's not going anywhere. So, so how do we really construct the bridge?
0: Yeah, so, uh, you know, firstly, I'd like to make the distinction between modernity and modernism. Modernism is a cultural movement that is actually counter-modernity. Modernity is the age in which we live. Modernity is the age that begins with the Enlightenment. And actually, modernity is an attempt to arrive at a single picture of the world. This is the Westerns, Western idea of piecing together a scientific knowledge of the world that is modernity the world is to some extent controlled by that view you know today but not to all ex- not to an entire extent and as you said anjan uh, there is a certain f- fracturing of that that is also occurring that is really postmodernity postmodernity acknowledges innumerable radically different views of reality and that the reason why some of these views are completely refusing the idea of modernity to the extent of actually becoming human bombs and really putting their life at stake for their radically different view is part of this absolute radical fracturing of Uh, you know, of the views of reality, of exclusive views of reality, of exclusivism taken to its extreme. I feel that's, that's exactly where the difference lies, that if we approach purely with our mind, there is no other way to go. That's where we'll end up. That's what's happening. That's why even in academics now, there is more and more a turn to new psychologies. That are looking at the definition of the human in a different way we have consciousness studies we have transpersonal psychology it's studying our experiences of unity it's saying that we can understand each other at other levels and in other ways than just with our minds so to what extent are we porous to what extent can we be unique and one at the same time this question can only be answered if we try to experience it. And that is the hope for the future. The hope for the future is a movement beyond mental exclusivism, ideological exclusivism. And that's partly what we are talking about over here. And it can come, I feel, my my, my at least domain is academics. It can come through new definitions of the human. If we think of our modern times, it had its beginning in a pre-modern time. So when we think of the thinkers of the Enlightenment who created our age, they didn't know each other in many cases. And they belong to a world which thought very differently. But the world has changed because they established a new image of the human. We are similarly going through a change in which the question is, can we establish a new image of the human that will percolate down to create this possibility of experience?
1: Okay. Yeah. Thanks, Dvashish. Uh, Lakshman Jairatne, uh, he is from Sri Lanka. He has uh, he raised his hand. lucky are you there?
2: Yes, uh, I'm here. Yeah. Uh, So, thank you, Prabhat, and thank you, uh, Professor Banerjee, for uh, this uh, talk. I found it very useful. uh, And uh, in the beginning, I thought it is mainly about the historical perspective of uh, the activities uh, under the different beliefs and religions when you uh, compared the uh, handiwork, etc. But then you got into the philosophical part of it. So, in Sri Lanka, we Uh, have a majority population, uh, Buddhists, in uh, about 75 percent. And unfortunately, uh, 99 percent are on the ritual uh, level, not the philosophical level, in terms of understanding. So they will uh, recite the stanzas, uh, the gathas, and uh, uh, read the Tripitaka, that is this uh, uh, dharma, dharma written in written form. Uh, and uh, try to follow that in a ritualistic manner. Few, few of us are looking at the philosophical part, which also you touched on comparatively. So in our uh, understanding, uh, it is like we uh, feel that the Buddha wanted everybody to analyze uh, before believing anything. Uh, then uh, some of us uh, think, a uh, uh, couple of my friends think, they an end to analysis and then at the end of the day, it is a you know it is a automatic process of uh, self uh, development spiritual liberation etc. Uh, also there is uh, we 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 have that uh, according to what Buddha preached uh, we are in a like a virtual reality game where we make things based on sensory input interpreted uh, based on our uh, mindsets and beliefs and information we got from the birth, time of birth, date of birth uh, in this life. And we interpret the world and we create the world. Uh, And uh, as we go on, we we should keep shedding these beliefs, get out of these beliefs uh, and look at uh, in a different way uh, and uh, then uh, come out of the duality also. Uh, So this is where we are. Uh, progressing out of the ritual uh, process. Anyway, uh, thank you very much. Uh, I want to tell I found it uh, very useful.
1: Thanks. Thanks. Okay. okay. One last question. Uh, Nandu Kulkarni. Nand, Nandu, you want to unmute and ask?
4: Yeah. Yeah. Thank you very much, uh, Prabhat and Professor Banerjee. It was a brilliant. I mean, you you covered the whole you know the last 5000 years in in a couple of hours uh, so that was a wonderful summary so i have a question about uh, a sort of school of thought or a kind of a movement if you like uh, i have also put my question on the uh, you know in the chat box uh, and so there is a movement which is trying to synthesize you know vedanta and the ancient philosophies uh, with Modern physics, you know, with quantum mechanics, and so first of all, what is your view on that? And if you have any view on that, and uh, what is a good place to start to start studying that? You know. So I'm
0: I'm actually not sure which movement you're talking about, but I do know that uh, quantum physics from its very beginning has had some relations with particularly spiritual thought uh, Eastern spiritual thought and particularly Vedantic thought uh, some of the founding fathers of quantum physics uh, were uh, deeply interested in uh, Indian spiritual thought like Warner Heisenberg and uh, uh, you know Wolfgang Pauli um, and uh, uh you know several several of them actually so from that point of view there is a attempt to uh, look at matter uh, the description of matter as ultimately in a sense uh paradoxical as ultimately disappearing not being able, not not explainable beyond a certain point and then having to rest on an Immaterial and perhaps united, single reality that only takes on uh, temporal and so locational attributes um, when we when we observe it and when we agree about it. In other words, we are we are participants, um, you know, not in a kind of an individual sense, but in a total sense, in a universal sense of the universes coming into existence, so to say, and physics is sort of, has come to a point of time where it's sort of knocking on the doors of that paradox, you
4: know? Exactly.
0: So yeah, Yeah. from that point of view, uh, the problem I think is this, I mean, it's okay to look at physics as a possible Uh, you know kind of opening in that direction but physics is after all a description and that our descriptions can get to a certain point and a certain sophistication that i think is the is the value of this kind of thinking but what these traditions are saying it's it's not just description it's experience you can experience it and you have to experience it it's not just about describing it adequately those who've described it in our philosophies, philosophy is a darshan. It always, always exists with yoga. You cannot have just darshan. In other words, if you just had darshan, it's some third person's experience. You have to experience it yourself. So that's where I think as a science, um, you know, physics can serve a certain function, but unless it sees itself as allied to the science of self realization, it doesn't go very far.
4: Well, actually, a lot of the developments in physics have happened because of people like Einstein and many, many others who, uh, you know, who through thought, I mean, not just thought, but introspection and, you know, various thought experiments and so on, And then they proved it mathematically, and you know some people call mathematics the language of God, whatever you know. And people even go to the extent of believing that God itself is, you know, mathematics is God, you know, and so on. But uh, leaving that aside, uh, so when I said movement, it is not of any kind of a formal movement which has a name. There are a lot of physicists who are sort of reductionists who believe that you know there is no such thing as a, you know, a substrate or a Brahman or anything like that, and there are others who believe that there is some coming together or some conversion, uh, convergence, which is you know which can happen between physics, you know, which which you know where you actually prove things through experiments and thought and so on, and the spiritual experience. Yeah. So one last question, uh, you have, so I understand that you teach. Uh, I'd like to you know. Whatever you teach, I'd like to. I'd like to join your class, but I see quite a few people who are, you know, who are part of your, uh, who are your students. So I'd like to, you know. Uh,
0: yeah, I teach at the California Institute of Integral Studies in San Francisco. Um, okay. Yeah. So we've just opened, in fact, a online master's degree. Uh, our PhD is residential. Uh, but uh, yeah, please feel free to email me. I'd love to be in contact with you. And yes, sir. Uh, in w- whatever way possible, and be happy to interact.
4: Yeah, I'll take your email uh, from Prabhat. No, yes. Sure. Thank I'll, you. I'll Thank you okay, very okay. much.
1: OK. I think we have one more question, but I think for the sake of time, OK. And, uh, so let's take that last question. OK, last we'll question. OK, that is from Raja, Raja Vishak Dev. Can you just, just briefly highlight how Samkhya d- Darshana transformed or got matured from its old school or pre Vedic or non Vedic or tantric tradition to Samkhya of Gita?
0: Yeah, thank you. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm happy that somebody actually asked a question that has to do with the content that, 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 that I was presenting. Uh, yes, you know, that's a very interesting question. And uh, you know that question can be expanded even in terms of how Sankhya got uh, transformed through Kashmir Shaivism. These are the two major schools that transformed Sankhya into. Though Kashmir Shaivism is not does not call itself a Vedantic school, but it's very heavily influenced by Vedanta. Uh, the Gita, of course, is a Vedantic school. So. Both these schools, I'll address both of them to some extent. Uh, You know, Sankhya is a dualistic system. In other words, it talks about our experience in the world as an experience that has, on the one hand, phenomenal constituents that can be conditioned, and on the other hand, something unpredictable and unconditionable which is pure consciousness, right? So that's the duality, right? You you have this is what Buddha is also talking about in his own way, without making it a duality. He doesn't refer to it as a duality, but he refers to it as something that can be conditioned, that we have to understand and we have to get out of, right? We have to disidentify ourselves with it. Sankhya gives that disidentified thing a name. It calls it Purusha, right? So we end up with these two. Now, what the Gita is saying is that whatever we are calling the active and conditioned part of the being is actually acting in the world because it is serving a certain evolutionary function controlled by a higher being. This evolutionary function is that of keeping the world together, loka sangra. Keeping the world together has a very deep meaning. It really, in an evolutionary sense, it means that we are growing in consciousness over time to a point where every individual, every atman, so to say, every entity will know that it is conscious. This is the completion of the Purnata, you may say, of keeping the world together. The world is automatically kept together because it knows its unity in all its elements. You know, it's not kept together from the top. It's kept together from the inside, inside out. That is the evolution. But while that's going on, we have to keep our focus on it. That's what's helping us and controlling us. So, our action, if it is surrendered to that, that can help us to move in that direction. So, that becomes the prakritic action and it connects a purusha to that. So, there is a purusha not only witnessing, there is a purusha that is active, an active purusha called shara purusha, the changing or active purusha. Then, there is the Purusha of Sankhya, which is called Akshara Purusha. That's just a witness. It's only watching. That is our liberation. We can be free from the conditioning. And that can help us with a vantage because out of that freedom, we can allow ourselves to act in a free creative way. See, now both of these have a third station. And that is the original station of Vishnu, Krishna or the divine that is called Purushottama, Uttama Purusha. So there are three Purushas. The one Purusha of Sankhya has now become more finely divided into three Purushas. And the one Prakriti of Sankhya has been divided into two. In the higher hemisphere of Vidya, Purusha and Prakriti are joined together. They are Purushottama and Prakriti. They are united. They know each other's truth. They are one in two. But here they have split into Purusha and Prakriti. That's why Sankhya is right as far as our everyday experience is concerned. But how do we unite the two together? Gita is providing us the yoga for uniting these two realms. That's how it nuances something.